1: Bingo! do you want to see me? Cut the old
2: man down. What's wrong, Ramon? You losing your touch? You afraid, Ramon? you to kill, you better hit the heart. Your own words, Ramon. The heart, Ramon. Don't forget the heart. Aim for the heart or you'll never stop me.
1: When a man with a forty-five meets a man with a rifle, you said the man with a pistol is a dead man. Let's see if that's true. Go ahead, load up and shoot.
0: listeners welcome and you are tuned into nostalgic radio and cars and boy have we got another great show for you this evening as usual and i have a fantastic guest coming on later bill how are you doing this evening bill's waving he hasn't got his mic side so he can't hear so he's looking staring at me through the big glass window anyway hey did uh, any of you guys catch the 24-hour le mans this past weekend what an amazing run. But I'll tell you what, I'm not going to break the uh, suspense for you. I'm going to have our special guest for the evening tell us all about it because he was almost there. I, I heard that uh, Tony Stewart was a crybaby because uh, Daryl Earnhardt Jr. won. But that was NASCAR. Well, don't you don't you talk NASCAR on your show? Uh, yeah. <laughs> NASCAR. Well, yeah, what's a while, but I actually don't follow NASCAR that much. I mean, I keep up. You know, when I started watching racing back in the old days, you know, it used to be the cars, you either had an allegiance to the car, which you were either a Ford or Chevy guy or a Chrysler guy, or you liked the drivers. And since the drivers kind of switched around a little bit, my allegiance was always to the car. So me being a Ford guy. And back in those days, I mean, racing was racing. Cars were cars. And there was a lot of cool stuff going on. Today, the Cars are pretty much all alike. There's no real trick stuff going on. I mean, it's, they're kind of like spec racers. So it's like they're all the same. The bodies all look alike. And the only thing they do is they hang a few decals on them. And one there's Ford, once there's Chevy, once says Toyota. And there might be a Chrysler in the field there somewhere. But other than that, that's, that's all I know about NASCAR. Now road racing is a different story because you got Porsches, you got Peugeots, you got Renaults, you got Ferraris, you got BMW, Audi, Mercedes, Lotus. Ford. You've got Chevrolets, you know, and of course, everybody knows I'm a Ford guy, so, you know, when I talk about Chevrolet, I'm referring to Brand X, okay? And uh, they didn't do too well at Le Mans, but oh well, that's to be expected. But at any rate, hey, go ahead and fire up that first song. We'll do a couple commercials and then we'll get to our guest.
2: same kind of story that seems to come down from long ago Two friends having coffee together, when something flies by their window It might be out on that lawn, which is why I'd at least half of the playing field remember a talk about North Carolina In a strange, strange world You see, the sides were like glass In the thick of a forest without a road And if any man's hand ever made that land Then I think it would have shown And that's why it seemed like a like dream
0: Ninety ninety, They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727-501-9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you.
1: Hey
0: listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Barn Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And boy, like I said earlier, we have a great show for you tonight. But one more thing I want to tell you guys about. Be sure and check out our website now. Google golfstreammotorsports.com, and on that website, you'll find all kinds of cool information about what we do, our services. One of the things I do, which is appraisals pre-purchase inspections and little things like that uh, broke your cars so if you guys have any car questions feel free to go to our contact section and shoot me an email or if you want to give me a call you can do so as well 727-541-1741 also check our snapshot section there i just uh, uploaded a few more pictures from some of the events that i kind of participate in around the country even globally, because there's uh, one section on there uh, when I was in Europe at the Weissach Porsche test facility in Germany, in Weissach, Germany. And uh, there's some old photographs in there. They had a picture of a uh, couple of cars that we could demo at the time, or actually not demo, just ride with, ride in. They were 930s, 911s, 944s, stuff like that. But the factory team race car driver, Hans Herrmann, who drove for Porsche for a number of years in the 50s and 60s, uh, he was there giving rides. And I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to ride with him in a 935 back in the day. So that was pretty much a dominating sports car back in the day, the uh, 935. They had the uh, prototype cars, 936, which didn't race here in the United States. Uh, They came out with the 956, and then uh, for U.S. purposes, they came out with the 962, and probably the most dominating Porsche that raced because I think its uh, longevity was somewhere around seven or eight years, which is pretty pretty outstanding for a uh, race car that didn't really change that much. I mean, minor things, you know. Uh, at any rate so be sure and check out our website don't forget you can also google us at Tantalk1340.com that's Tantalk1340.com and we are streamed live on the internet so if you're anywhere on the planet including the North Pole or the South Pole you can see us in the studio right now I'm waving and hear us live in our little uh, toolbox down here in uh, downtown Clearwater, which is where we broadcast from. We have a set of jumper tables hooked up to my truck, hooked up to a, a whip antenna outside, and that's why the reception's so great. Right, Bill? <laughs> anyway, go ahead roll that next commercial. And let's get our guest on the line, because I really look l- forward to having him this evening. If you like golf, enjoy affordable golf at Magnolia Valley Golf Club, located on Massachusetts Avenue in Newport Ritchie. Play for as little as $15 after 2 p.m. The club has two beautiful courses to choose from, an 18-hole championship par 72 plus another nine-hole executive par 33 join their open leagues on wednesday afternoons at four and sunday mornings at eight call 727 847 for tee times or visit their website magnoliavalleygolfclub.com Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio Cars. Let me tell you about my company, Gulfstream Motorsports, 727 541 1741. I have over 35 years' experience with classic vintage sport and racing cars. I do appraisals, consulting, and pre purchase inspections. Before you buy your next rare classic, the car of your dreams, give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsport 727 541 1741. Also, due to my 28 years' experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for lost value of your repaired vehicle. That's Gulfstream Street Motorsports 727-541-1741. And be sure to tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars Wednesdays, 7 to 8 p.m. on the TAN Talk Radio Network, AM 1340.
3: curious profession are few in number you have been recognized let's say by one of your opposite numbers who is also licensed to kill oh that interesting car of yours (laughs) i too have a new toy but considerably more practical you are looking at an industrial laser which emits an extraordinary light not to be found in nature it can project a spot on the moon or at closer range cut through solid metal i will show you Mr. Bond. All my life I've been in love with its color, its brilliance, its divine heaviness. I welcome any enterprise that will increase my stock, which is considerable. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. You're forgetting one thing. If I fail to report, 008 replaces me. I trust he will be more successful. But he knows what I know. You know nothing, Mr. Bond. Operation Grand Slam, for instance. Two words you may have overheard which cannot possibly have any significance to you or anyone in your organization. Can you afford to take that chance?
0: Okay, we're back, and you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Now it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. This gentleman's been racing... Well, his racing career started, I think, in the late 60s and spanned all the way through the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Okay, he's a multiple champion road racer. He is currently... A color commentator on Speed Channel, and he covers many, many, many F1 races, including the Le Mans race that just took place here over the uh, past weekend. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening, David Hobbs. David, are you there?
1: I am indeed. Unfortunately, late 60s. Uh, you're 10 years too late. Late uh, 50s. Is late when 50s? I oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I started in 1959.
0: 59. So, oh, that's right. You were yeah. driving your mother's little Morse, right? Exactly. Okay. I,
1: you know, I didn't sneak off any. I, I told her what I was going to do. Unfortunately, I drove it to the race to a place called Snetterden. Um Any English listeners will know where Snetterton is. It's in Norfolk in East Anglia, and it was a another Air Force bomber base in World War Two, And it's very cool in Snetterden. There doesn't seem to be anything between Snesden and the Russian Steps. Um, and always races, you know, when we used to do club racing, you always had to be there at about 6 o'clock in the morning for tech, or scrutineering as we used to call it. And, of course, the race was never till about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So they were some pretty long days. But, um, and the first race I did there was with my mum's Morris Oxford, as you said. Unfortunately, I didn't drive it home because the engine blew up. I had to go back on the following Thursday with a friend's father and his car, and we towed it home.
0: Now, how old were you? This and in Europe, if I remember correctly, you have to be what eighteen to have a driver's license. Is yeah, England? I was
1: nineteen then. Okay, uh, seventeen in England to have a driver's license, and of course you couldn't you couldn't race then until you had a road license. Now it's a bit different. You know, you see fourteen-year-olds doing uh, some pretty serious racing on ovals, and of course, even in long-distance races, you have fifteen and sixteen-year-olds driving.
0: So what got you interested in
1: racing? Well, nothing in specific. I am um, my dad was an engineering inventor. Um, and he invented a very early automatic transmission back in the 20s. Uh, he, he lived in Australia. He was the son of a of a successful orange grower in Adelaide, Australia and um and dad went to a good school, but he didn't have an engineering degree, but Right from a very early age, you know, 15 and 16, he started to invent all sorts of mechanical objects. Um, And, of course, back in those days, the very early 20s, gearboxes on cars were probably just ridiculous. You know, straight-cut gears, very difficult to use. um, And Dad could see right away that this was not a cool thing. Um, So he invented a whole bunch of automatic transmissions and eventually came to England. A consortium of Australian businessmen got together, sent to England to develop it, because England, then believe it or not, was the centre of the uh, of the motor industry. And um, he he never went. He unfortunately never went back to Australia. But so I was brought up with cars from a very early age because I was born right at the beginning of World War Two. And in England, petrol rationing was very, very, very severe. Um, But Dad had an extra ration because he (coughs) was inventing this gearbox and war office could see, you know, potential in this thing. And uh, so they gave him a few more coupons than most people. And uh, so I, I didn't drive, but, I mean, I was driven around by him at a very early age when there was virtually no traffic on the road at all, um, except army vehicles of <laughs> one sort or another. Um, and I don't know. As I, <clears throat> when I was a teenager, a young teenager, I was very keen on tennis. And I played tennis and, um, at a local club, and I was quite good. And um, I wasn't thinking of it as a professional anything, but um, I, I really enjoyed playing it very much. And um, as I say, I was quite good at it. And then a friend of mine um, got a motorbike, a BSA 250, single-cylinder motorbike, and for his birthday when he was 17. Um, and he was a year older than me. And I stood on the sidewalk. When he got on this machine, kickstarted it and drove off. And I was a bit like, Mr. Toad of Toad of Toad Hall, um, I had a transformation. I mean, I had a complete epiphany right there and then standing on the sidewalk. And I thought, I have got to have one of those. Um, So I persuaded the old man to buy me a scooter. Mum was dead against the motorbike, and the scooter was the next best thing. Um, And I brought that, and I used to drive it like an absolute man possessed, wore out all the footrests and everything. And then I sold that and bought myself a Triumph 500, which was a pretty serious bike in its day. And I used to drive that like a madman with my girlfriend on the back, Margaret, who I'm still married to to this day, 55 years later, 56 years later.
0: Congratulations. And
1: we used to charge around the countryside like a couple of demented idiots. And um, it got to the point where I thought, you know, maybe I should race this bike. But then at uh, discretion... <laughs> Took over, and so I decided I would go racing. But I'd race. Uh, I could only race my arms car. or so we had, we no way, no way we could have bought a racing car. You know, we had no, re, you know, no way the old man could have done that. But um, as this car had an experimental, one of his experimental gearboxes in it, um, I um, so I raced first of all with an automatic transmission. Funny enough, 1959, um, and that's how I started. Um, really, just playing around at it. Um, and then the next year, I commandeered the old man's Jag. He had a Jaguar SK140 Drophead Coupe, which is a beautiful car, also with his automatic transmission in it. And I raced that in 1960. At the very first race, I managed to turn it over on the last lap of a race at a place called Alton Park in England. Uh, unfortunately, it did quite a bit of damage to the bodywork. Um, and the old man said, well, you broke it. You're going to have to fix it.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, And I was an apprentice at the time at Daimler Cars in Coventry. And um, I knew old Joe in the body shop. And Joe did a bit of moonlighting at his little house in Daventry. And I took it around there, and uh, he and I sort of cobbled this thing together again. But it sure as hell never looked the same again. That's for dead sure. And uh, (laughs) and unfortunately, he spray-painted it in his garage. It must have been the wrong time of day because it sort of came out matte. It was the same blue the car had been in the first place, but it no longer had a gloss finish. It was kind of a matte finish. (laughs) Uh, It was no beauty, but um, I did manage to win some races in that car. And and then the next year, um, Dad had sold some of his firm, and he had a bit of cash, and we decided to um, promote the gearbox it'd be a good idea. I thought it'd be a great idea. Of course, he thought it'd be a reasonable idea. I thought it was a brilliant idea that I would race a Lotus Elite, which was a pretty advanced little car in its day, Mm -hmm. um, with Dad's Automatic, which I did in 1961. And um, I won. We got up to a slightly dodgy start. Um, Then we got an ex-Lotus engineer who came on board to help us. And... um, I ended up winning 14 out of 18 starts in 1961 in that car. And I suppose the rest, as they say, the old cliche, the rest is history. Um, <laughs> because in those days, if you did well, you know, people would actually ask you to drive their car. They'd say, would you like to drive my car in X race? Uh, and, of course, they always ask you how much money you wanted. You know, you were £5, £10, £100, um, And it was a a proper business transaction. You drove their car, and they paid you to drive it. Uh, Nowadays, unfortunately, they say, oh, yeah, you're doing very well. Um, We'd like you to drive our car. How how much money can you bring? (laughs) And um, the whole thing sort of got a bit off kilter somehow. But, um, But that's how I started.
0: Whatever happened to the transmission?
1: Well, unfortunately, it never really saw the light of day. It got very, very close. We did a lot of work with Ford in England, Ford Dagenham. They had lots of prototypes. We had dad had prototypes on just about anything that moved: BMWs, Fiats, Alfa Mares, Bentleys, uh, Austins, Morris's, Fords, Rovers, Armstrong Sidleys, buses, trains. um, Really, all sorts of things. Um, And everybody that tested, it, drove it. Everybody said it was brilliant. It was obviously way before its time because it was a four-speed automatic with a. uh, A friction clutch, hydraulically operated, so all the gearboxes then had big torque converters and lost massive amounts of power. Uh, And this lost very little power, hence I was able to race the Lotus Elite, which only gave about 95 horsepower on a good day, um, successfully against other Elites with standard shift. Um, And unfortunately, we got very close with Ford, but in the end, somebody in Dagenham probably a friend of somebody at BorgWarner who were making all their other gearboxes <laughs> said I don't think this is a very good idea and it never saw the light of day so um and the old man you know he was a very resilient character he um all took it all in stride and then he went on to develop a an infinitely variable transmission he said well if they don't like stepped ratios we'll we'll make one in, infinitely variable which um Nowadays, it's become quite the thing. You know, a lot of people Honda have a, uh, what they call a CVT. Uh, yeah, Audi uh, has uh, it. Uh, yeah, exactly. It, most people have got one now, mm-hmm. but nobody likes to drive them much. They're a bit weird to drive. But um,
0: well, they have planetary gears in them. That's what they've got. There, so.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, of course, Dad had the first. Well, his first gearbox, the stepped one, had a beautiful planetary gearbox, a gear train, which he had designed and um, and made up to, to give him the four speeds. So. It was a nice transmission. Well, it was a fantastic transmission. Uh, but unfortunately, um, it was a bit before his time. Um, of course, he'd have been green with envy these days. I mean, he thought four speeds was pretty, pretty outlandish. Now you've got people like Dodge making eight speed automatic transmissions and, and talking about nine and, and, and so on. So he'd have been very pleased to play with the modern. And of course, his car, his, his gearbox was always hydraulically operated. Nowadays, of course, they're electrically, electronically Mm -hmm. operated, so um, uh, he probably would have had a lot of fun with that, too.
0: Did you, yourself, were you much of a wrench? I mean, did you work on the cars quite a bit, mechanically and stuff?
1: A little bit. Um, I did a five-year apprenticeship, engineering apprenticeship at Daimler, and then at Jaguar. We were taken over by Jag, Mm -hmm. and I became a Jaguar apprentice. But uh, I wouldn't like to say that I was a technician. Okay. That would be a very loose term in my case.
0: Okay. You know, it's interesting, you had a very similar start like your friend Brian Redmond, because he started out racing his little uh, wagon uh, Morris exactly. Minor uh, at he the did. same year, 1959 as well.
1: Yeah, exactly, yeah. We came up... I didn't really meet Brian until about 19, um, 1967, 66, 67. Mm-hmm. But he apparently had been watching me um, and um, when I... by 1965, I was driving a Lola T70. It was the first year of the Lola T70, which was a gorgeous car in its day, you know, the first monocoque sports car. Very fast, handled well. Um, And he saw me win a race at Croft. And he had a very rich patron, a chap um, from Red Rose Motors in um, Burnley, where um, Brian came from. And this guy had said to him, you know, what do you want to race next year? thinking that Brian would say, you know, Formula Three or you know, let's have a Bradman Formula Three or a Lotus Formula Three and Brian said, I want one of them so, <laughs> <laughs> that's what got Brian into big sports cars.
0: Well now what was the first major race that you ever raced in back then?
1: Well the first major race I ever did, I suppose really, would have to be um would have to be the Nürburgring in nineteen sixty one, uh, the first year of the Lotus Elite. And um, we decided that we would take it over to the Nürburgring, um, which from England is not difficult. You know, we just caught the ferry uh, and went over the channel um, with a car and a trailer uh, and drove it down to the Nürburgring, which from, you know, from Calais to um, the Nürburgring, probably only a couple of hundred miles up in the Eiffel Mountains there. Um, And we were entered in the... uh, in the up to 1100cc GT class. Now, the Germans, as you know, are very uh, numbers-oriented, very organized. You will start over there, and you will stand there, and uh, you will not move until I tell you, all that sort of stuff. And we were there, and then um, there was this voice came over the aktong faralaga, aktong Lager, which is a tension pallet. Will Herr Hobbs please go to the um, clerk of the course's office? Um, Sturman Fuhrer's officer what they call it. So I go off there with my brother who's there helping out a sort of team manager. And the guy says, Ah, Herr Hobbs, your car has an automatic Getriebe, Um and these are not homologated. Uh your car comes normally with a four speed gearbox and uh, not automatic. And one of your compatriots has protested you <laughs> <laughs> and this was a bloke called Les Lester, who, funnily enough, has only just died, age ninety-one. Because hey, I'd beaten Les the week before at Brands Hatch in England. Um, now, about a week before that, we had another race, and Les had said to me, "You must be out of your bloody mind racing a car with an automatic gearbox. What the, what the hell are you thinking about? You must be nuts." And I said, "Yeah, but this is not the automatic. This is not your father's automatic. This is very different to what you." used to seeing. Yeah, well, right, you, you must be very fine. Anyway, the following week, I beat him at Brands Hatch. So the week after that, when we're at Nürburgring, of course, he protests my car. So the Germans very kindly put us from the 1100cc, which is what we were, GT class, to the 1600cc sports car class, which, of course, for RSKs, I mean, quick stuff. Sterling Moss was driving one of those, and Jürgen Barth, and all sorts of quick guys, uh, and a much quicker car, proper sort of racing car, really. Anyway, as luck would have it, me and my partner, Bill Pinkney, who was a friend of mine who raced a Lotus 11, we were pretty quick, and we learned the track very well and very quickly, and we won a 1600cc sports car class because on the last lap, the guy who was leading it fell off the road. So we suddenly ended up winning this class. Now, as I say, the Germans were very organized, and all the prize money was stepped. Um, and a small GT car got a lot less than a big sports car because the sports cars were a better car, so they got more money. So we ended up with about five times the money we'd had if we won the GT class. <laughs> so, so they paid a bit of a compliment.
0: What made that transmission so unique? Was it did it did it actually help you in terms of of speed on the track, or uh, in terms of efficiency, or was it just that you were just had great driver skill?
1: Oh, the latter definitely. <laughs> 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 no, it, okay. uh, it was it it was pretty neat. Um, obviously, you had a full power upshift, so just like an ordinary automatic, you know, you you'd leg it, you put your foot, put your clog on the old accelerator, and hold it there, and just. What it had was it had four automatic gears, um, and it had manual override in all of them. Now, in the production units, the hydraulic unit had very small holes so that if you were to go and stick it in first at, like, 90, obviously it wouldn't go in Mm. um, until it got down to the speed at which the engine wouldn't over-rev in first gear. In the the racer, we, we drilled those holes out so that I could... Go down, you know, a gear earlier than I would normally. And I just manually did it. It was like, it was a bit like a sequential shift for me. Hmm. It was, you know, reverse, park, neutral, one, two, three, an automatic. And I would just go one, two, three, whatever I needed, you know. Um, so I'd do a hand shift, um, but I could have, uh, obviously, I had full power upshifts. And for braking, of course, you could really, really, you know, with just two pedals, you could really concentrate on, on braking hard and you didn't have to heel and toe and all that stuff to downshift. So I think in some ways it was a little bit quicker. It did use a little bit more power than a standard box, probably two or three, somewhere between two and five percent more power. And it was a bit heavier than a stick shift. But, you know, and to start it, I would rev the car in neutral, just stick it in first, and, uh, and that was my. Equivalent of dropping the clutch. <laughs> and then off it went. And uh, as I say, we won the class. So that was, you know, in 1961, that felt great. There's me and Bill. Um, what were we, 22 years old? Well, I was 22. He was 24. Uh, standing on the podium in those days, because they used to give you those big garlands, you know. Um, and it felt pretty good hearing the old national anthem being played there in the heart of Germany uh, <laughs> in, our first, in our first international race.
0: Wow, that's super! Now, when yeah. did you, when did you go to? Le, what was your first uh, your first drive at uh, Indy? I meant, uh, Le Mans.
1: Well, my first drive at Le Mans came the following year, 1962. Okay, um, and I also drove an Elite there, but I didn't drive my Elite. Um, a guy c- called Clive Hunt, who um, ran a quasi factory team of Elites called Team Elite, he had three cars. Uh, and there was myself and Frank Gardner drove one, and uh, Clive and John Wagstaff drove another, and um, there was another car. I can't remember who drove it, but um, and um, so that was 1962. Was my first Le Mans in the elite, and Frank and I won the class. Um, so my first two international events were fairly successful. I won the first time out at Nurburgring, the first time out at Le Mans. Um, at the time, you know, I would I would always said I won the class. But I have noticed that in the modern lexicon, you know, people say, yeah, I've won Le Mans three times. You say, have you? I, I, haven't, I haven't heard of you. You know, and, they, and of course they they won the class. Um, so you could say I was a Le Mans winner. I wouldn't say I was a Le Mans winner. I'd say I was a Le Mans class winner. But it was pretty good, and Frank and I won that, and we... Um, they also had some other indexes then that the, the French to really to help their little, they had a thing called a, a DB Panhard, which is a small engine car, mm-hmm. little car. And the French didn't have any, this is before Matra and those other guys came along, they didn't have any decent uh, race cars. So they had these little DB Panhards. And so to help them, they had this, what they call the index of thermal efficiency and the index of performance, which of course are based on fuel consumption, speed and stuff like that. And... Which, of course, they always used to win. Well, that year we had such a good run, we must have gone fast enough, and we, uh, we won the class, and we won the, both indexes of thermal efficiency and performance. So we went away with quite a haul. Of course, in those days it was probably about 50 bucks we won. But,
0: <laughs> what kind of, uh, I mean, when you were driving for those guys, what kind of money did you make back in those days?
1: Oh, my God. I kind of they probably paid me about 50 quid, um, <laughs> but, I would think.
0: Now, quid's equivalent to what? So break it down for our listeners. Well,
1: now a quid is a, a, a pound. It's a pound, uh, right? Is about a dollar sixty. Oh, okay. <laughs> Those days it was about two sixty. So, in terms of dollars, uh,
0: maybe a hundred bucks.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's mind-boggling. So,
1: well, All right. well, for instance, when I raced that little elite, I'd go to somewhere like Maori Park, which is a, a circuit not far from where I lived, in Com- uh, just north of Coventry. And, of course, you negotiated with the promoter for starting money because there was virtually no prize money. I mean, literally, to win the class in a GT race at Mallory Park, the winner would get, like, £10. Second would get five. And third would get, you know, I mean, not, or you might get 20. 20, 15, and 10 quid, and that was it. So we used to go for start money, um, appearance money. Uh, and, you know, the more races the one. of course, you could, Ask for more appearance money. And I would get paid maybe 40 or 50 pounds. But, I mean, that money basically was supposed to run the car. Um, So the money was not great. Was it
0: 1965 or sixty-six? you said you raced the Lola? Was that the first big horsepower car that you got behind?
1: It was, really, yeah. I drove Formula 2 cars in um, the mid-60s, which were, you know, like a 2-liter, 1.6-liter, 2-liter cars, giving about 200 horsepower. But the first really big horsepower car I drove was the T70 in 1965. And that had a 289 Ford in it, so it probably gave 400. Um, we should have had the 365 Chev, which was a much, much better package. But um, the team I was driving for was not exactly. I mean, it was they, had, they weren't a race team before. They were just this kid wanted to go racing, so he... Got this friend of his who owned a garage, an S.O. garage, and he ran the car. So it was very, very much <clears throat> the blind leading the blind, this was. Um, but that was <clears throat> that was a pretty, it was a lovely car to drive. I mean, it had lots of power.
0: Oh, they're a stunning car. Absolutely beautiful yeah. car, the level two seventy. Yeah, When did you come to the United States and race?
1: Well, the very first time I came to the States to race was 1962. Oh, really? Actually, I suppose you could say that was the first time I drove a big engine car. Yeah, I came to the States, and I drove in the original... Daytona, the Rolex 24.
0: you oh, no. still that? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, sure.
1: Uh, which, of course, wasn't the and it wasn't Rolex either. It was the, uh, what Bill France called the uh, Continental 3R. And that was the very first race. You know, he had big visions about making Daytona an international track, not just a NASCAR track. And um, I, was in, I had just left JAG. I'd just finished my apprenticeship. Um, and I was helped enormously by a guy called Lofty England, who, as a man of history, You'll probably remember Lofty England was the team manager when Jaguar won Le Mans in 1954 and 5, and he was called Lofty because he was very tall, and Lofty became managing director of Jaguar, and I was an apprentice there, and Lofty and I used to have races to work. I was working in the machine shop. He was obviously managing director, and I'd be on the motorbike, and he'd be in his E-type Huh! very early E-Type. And uh, he would get there first, and then he'd be standing arms akimbo when I drove up in the motorbike. Because he'd say, that was very interesting, Hobbs, but uh, weren't you supposed to be here an hour ago? Anyway, that's sort of digressing here. He um, he got me my first professional race with a with a, a guy called Peter Berry, who was a chicken farmer in England, who had had a car, two cars. He had a 3.8 saloon uh, sedan, Jag, and a E-type, which Bruce McLaren had driven in 1961. Now, in 1962, Bruce declined; uh, was too busy doing his own thing. And so I drove for Peter Berry. So that was my first professional drive, and the very first drive I did for him was at Daytona in the 1962 3-hour. Unfortunately, I only did about 16 laps before the fuel pump broke. Um, Uh, But, of course, I remember the race ever so well in Daytona and Bill France and the reception we got, which was just extraordinary. You know, he really put out the red carpet for all the foreign teams. And and, um, I stayed in a room. I shared a room at the the Carousel Motel uh, on Ormond Beach with Jimmy Clark. Oh, wow. And Jimmy Clark had become my new hero because my real hero was Sterling. And he had beaten Sterling about two weeks before that in a Formula One race in Bulawayo, in what was then Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And Jimmy had beaten Sterling, also in a Lotus. So I thought, this this guy must be pretty damn good. Um, and I'd been watching Jimmy, and he'd been racing elites. And, um, and Colin Chapman had asked us um, at the end of the 61 season, when I'd won all those races, he asked us if he could borrow my car to go to do the Continental Race with Jimmy driving it. So I went to drive the E type for this guy called Peter Berry and Jimmy drove my load Elite in the smaller class. Because Jimmy, needless to say, was leading by about three minutes. Um he came in for his one and only fuel stop and the bloody starter motor had got so overheated um that it wouldn't start. And so he his race was run. And so I spent both this time with Jimmy then because we, we flew into New York because there was no flights to Orlando or anything like I mean, Orlando wasn't even there then hardly. It um, <laughs> just a village. And um, we flew to New York, and the cars came on the boat, and then um, a guy from Briggs Cunningham helped put the whole thing together. And then they trucked the cars down to Daytona, and Jimmy and I and Peter Berry drove down. And, of course, there was no I-95 then. It was, um, I suppose it would be Route 1, wouldn't it? still there uh,
2: yeah
1: mm-hmm. um and we drove down on route one um must have taken us two or three days at least got stopped about 50 times by the cops um <laughs> amused jimmy all these cops in their neatly pressed shirts and their sort of cowboy hat things you know which we thought was extraordinarily comical but, um, didn't think it was so comical when it us to put our hands on the roof
0: <laughs> did you uh what was the first year you um raced at sebring then
1: well, then I, I I did the 62 race, Okay. and I didn't come back again until 64. Um, my career, I'd, I'd turned professional 64. Mrs. Hobbs and I by now had um, one baby who was two years old, and another one was about to be born in May of 64. And um, Dad's company, who I was working for, had, of course, by now ceased to exist. It It went belly up at the end of 63. And in 63, I had quite a good year. I had my first year in Formula in single-seater. I won my first race in a single-seater. And I think I came third in the British Championship. And I'd done some GT racing, and I had driven at Le Mans with Richard Atwood in the Lola GT. And um, I suppose that would be my first big car. Yeah, we drove the Lola GT at Le Mans in 1963, Richard and I. Okay. And um, so I had made about 900 pounds out of my racing. And Dad had also paid me about £900. So I thought, well, with a bit of luck, you know, and a bit more racing, I should be able to make, you know, maybe a couple of thousand, maybe two or three thousand pounds a year out of the racing. So Mrs. Hobbs and I had a board meeting in the kitchen while we were feeding the baby and said, should I turn pro or should I start looking for a real job? And then, of course, she said, well, you aren't clever enough to do a real job anyway, so we better stick to the racing on you. So I did. Um, and so in my first professional year, I drove. They were Team Lotus Cortina's run out of Chesant, and I drove with um, a whole bunch of guys, including my expense. And we came over here, and we did um, a race at a place called Marlborough, which is now gone, mm-hmm. down by Washington.
0: Yeah, Maryland.
1: And uh, we also raced up here at Road America in the 500. And um, I honestly can't remember how I did. My biggest memory of that is that we got lost because the woman in England from Lotus who had booked our rooms obviously looked at the map of America. And it must have been a fairly small-scale map because she decided that Madison would be the place to say to do Road America. Well, Madison's about 80 miles from... Uh, Road America, and there was no I ninety four, and there was no I forty three, so it was all cross country. We got lost every day going to and from the track. But so that was my next race in America, and then I I didn't come again until I drove at Sebring in nineteen sixty eight, and Daytona and Sebring, and Watkins Glen in nineteen sixty eight in the Gulf GT forties. Oh wow! And, um, I drove in those three. Uh, came back again sixty nine with GT40s, drove the same three races again. And also in 69, John Surtees sent me over here in a Formula 5000 Surtees, And um, I took part in the Formula 5000, Formula A it was called then, Um, but it was Formula 5000. And um, my first race in that championship was, again, up here at Road America. Um, And I... uh, was leading on the first lap. We had three 100-mile heats. Unfortunately, the car went on to seven at the end, so I did about two laps. Um, Although that year, I did another six races in the Formula 5000. And I came second in the championship by one point to Tony Adamowicz, but I only did half the races. He did 13 races, I did seven. Uh, And he beat me by one point. Um, Because having got over that snafu at... um, Road America, we won at Lime Rock, we won at um, Brainerd, we won again at Lime Rock, and we won at Sebring, and I won. Perhaps I won won again when we went back to Road America. But I mean, I had a pretty good year, but um, it was to no avail because I just didn't do enough races. So that's when I really, really started to concentrate on the States, was 69. Um, And then I... I didn't do. I didn't drive for Gulf in 1970 when they went to the 917s. They decided to use Brian Redman and Derek Bell, a couple of other guys. Um, and I next time went to Daytona was with Mark Donahue in 1971 in the 512, which we were on the pole and leading. And then in the night he got hit by a Porsche that we'd lapped about four thousand times, and we came third. Went to Sebring, we were on the pole leading again, and he ran into. Pedro Rodriguez, down at the far end of the track of 917. We went to Le Mans, we were running third, and the engine blew up. And we went to Watkins Glen, we are on the pole, leading the race, and the steering post broke. So not one of Roger Penske's best years. <laughs> very disappointing. I couldn't believe it. I thought, now I'm driving Roger Penske, this is going to be fantastic. Well, it didn't work out that way. So.
0: Now, when you race the Formula 5000, are you, are you I, I'm, you're more of a, Enclosed car kind of guy, or did you really enjoy op- r- racing the uh, open wheel cars?
1: I, I would say, yeah, I, I probably did more closed cars, but open wheel would be my first choice. Yeah, I mean they're, they're, they're so neat to drive open wheel cars. Uh, you know, so you feel such, you feel more like you're part of the car. do You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I um, yeah, something about an open wheel car that you you can't repeat. Now the modern cars like, like the Audi you know that just one Le Mans I mean it's, it's almost a single seater really I mean the two seats are right in the middle of the car I mean it's, it's, it's just like a single seater really but in those days even a 962 was wide and you know always felt you know the bigger cars always feel just a bit cumbersome somehow so single seaters are really neat to drive
0: We've got about four minutes, three minutes left, something like that. What was probably one of the most memorable races that you had, let's say, through uh, the 962 years?
1: Well, um, I had a lot of good races in the 962. Probably one of the best we had was um, I was driving with Thierry Bootson at the Nürburgring. It was the first race on the circuit they use now for Formula One. So this would be 1984. And um, we had looked... The, Porsches had a locked diff, they didn't have a diff, they had a spool, the 962, and I don't think they ever needed it, because they had plenty of power, about 700, but it was soft power, being turbo, so we put a diff in, um, you know, a pretty pretty heavy diff, I mean, it locked up pretty much, but I mean, it was not a spool, and it rained, and me and Terry Bootsen led that race for about, well, a 600-mile race, and we, <clears throat> it was a 1,000-kilometer race, so it's 600 miles, and we led for about 585 miles. And it was the Group C race um, where you had to be very careful with the fuel, and you you had to really orchestrate your fuel stuff, because it was was a bit of a fuel economy run, really, that Group C. And the pits, they had their own pumps. You didn't do your own fueling. They had built this brand new track, brand new pit area, with all these wonderful fuel pumps to to refuel the race cars. Well, we came in with just about, you know, an hour to go or 45 minutes to go and the bloody fuel pump, our fuel pump wouldn't work in our pit. So, we fiddle around and, you know, and then John Fitzpatrick who had been the driver with me and he owned the team, he said, you better bugger off, you know, and we lost the lead uh, because we had to come in again to, you know, we had to come in eventually to get fuel. We got the pump working so we came in but, and that lost us the race and, um, that would have been a great victory because the mighty Rothman's Porsches had swept everything before them. And, um, and we, as I went down to the Dunlop curve, I could see uh, Stefan Belloff in the, Roth, the lead Rothman's car going up the other side. So we were about three quarters of a lap in front of this mighty Rothman's Porsche, you know, Panzer team. And we led them for freaking hours um, in very tricky conditions. And we were let down by the fuel pump at the track. And that was really, really, really disappointing.
2: Wow.
0: Real quick, now, I'd, we have about a minute left or something like that. I would love to have you back on again because you got some great stories. I want to talk about the 220 Jaguars that you race. I want to talk about your commentating career. I want to talk about, you know, just a lot of stuff. And you did some other oddball racing too. Well, so, uh. I
1: tell you what. Rob, I'll have to come on to your show about five times, because we've got to—we've basically got to about 1971 so far. Well, that's good. And, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there's another 40 years to go yet.
0: Absolutely. Well, no, no, we can, t- we can jump around a little bit, which is kind of fun, because I want to hear some of your takes on some of the races that you've commentated on, and I really kind of wanted to go into Le Mans this time, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to have Bob Barshaw on, and, then, and I think he's coming on after the Hockenheim race, the German Grand Prix, so oh, what I'll do is I'll shoot you an email, and then what we'll do is we'll kind of figure out what which race, which F1 race you want to talk about. Talk about a little bit. So then, what we'll do is we'll go back in your history a little bit, and then we'll talk about some of the races that you're commentating on, and, and get your play-by-play. So okay, great. Anyway, but don't go away here. Uh, I want to talk to you. Just have to hang on to the phone here. Don't go away. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to close out here, and then uh, I'm going to catch you on the other line real quick. Anyway, hey, I want to thank everybody for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. My guest this evening was racer extraordinaire, David Hobbs. Also, you can see him on Speed Channel every weekend. He's commentating on some of the F1 races and uh, GT races and SCCA races and all kinds of races. So everybody else, I want to see you guys at some of these events coming up. Don't forget. Tomorrow night, we have Quaker Steak and Lube down on uh, 49th Street in St. Pete. Or actually, I guess that's Pinellas Park, Clearwater. Okay, big car show starts at 5, gives us 7 or 8 or 9 or 10, or when everybody decides to leave. Meantime, everybody stay safe, drive carefully, love your family. We'll see you at the car shows. Tune in next week. Tell your friends. Check out our website, Motorsports.com. If you guys need an appraisal, give me a call, 727-541-1741. And, uh, hey, go see some of our sponsors, okay? When you check out our website, a lot of cool guys there.